How's it going? So, it's been quite a while since uh, we kind of went live. I put a bunch of new stuff up, uh, well, old stuff up on dbpodcast.org. Maybe you're listening to this there now. We're also up on iTunes with this. And we're working on Stitcher and a couple other apps uh, because I know those are real popular. I listen to Stitcher, a lot of podcasts on there. Anyway, welcome to DB Podcast. Uh, what is DB? I don't know. Decibel Wines, uh, Doing Business, Drinks Business. Uh, just kind of settled on DB after some longer names for this podcast and some copyright issues and things like that. But we're settled in now, so uh, it's just DB Podcast, and we're going to talk to some of your best folks in fermentation. So uh, a lot of winemakers, brewers, research people. Uh, even some marketing people and things like that that are surrounded uh, are surrounding the industry. Uh, but uh, we do have some announcements this week. Um, we're on a big tour right now in the U.S. where uh, a lot of my wines are available, and now we're making the Paratua wines, where I'm a winemaker at as well. Uh, they are becoming available here in the U.S. So a couple announcements. Um, one, congrats to Paratua and Jason and and I'm part of that team as well for taking out the top New Zealand red at Texom. I just have been at Texom, and I'll get to that in a bit. But that was pretty awesome, and to be able to walk in there and represent Hawks Bay and uh, beat out all those Pinots, even though I'm a Pinot lover myself. Um, yeah, so that was cool. But uh, we've got some other events coming up. Uh, in New York City, our first big tasting there, uh, dinner, party. It's going to be fun. And Jason from Paratua is going to join me. That is Thursday. September 8th at Flinders Lane in New York City in Manhattan. Uh, that is uh, reservations. There's only about 40 tickets available, and I think a lot have already gone. Uh, but there should be some left uh, by the time you get this. So go to flinderslane-nyc.com for your reservations. Uh, that should be really fun. We're going to be with our new importer and, uh, yeah, just a few other friends who... Uh, we've been waiting to come to New York for a long time. I spent a lot of time in New York back in the day, and um, yeah, it's exciting. So we got some old friends from Seeking Homer, and you know, some fans who have been getting the wines online, but never really uh, were able to attend events in other parts of the country. So we kind of wanted to do New York right, and we feel like we're with the right people there now. So yeah, very exciting. And then, of course, Philadelphia will be at McCrossin's Tavern on September thirteenth. Tuesday, September 13th, go to macrossons.com to make reservations for that. Jason from Paratua will be, th be with me again, and of course, Brother Jamie behind the bar, and uh, should be a party, should be fun. Uh, they're always great in the summertime because we got the outdoor seating area. Uh, we're going to be pouring uh, Sauvignon Blanc Pinot Noir from Decibel and Syrah and Chardonnay from Paratua and Stone Paddock on at both those gigs. So, uh, yeah, we hope, hope you guys can make it out to that. Also wanted to mention, by the time some of you are listening to this, particularly in the U.S., to check out FOMOVINO.com. That's where you can get uh, most of the Paratua wines, all the Decibel wines, Stone Paddock wines. Um, it's a really good website, really easy to use. Uh, there's always specials up there if you join as a member. So check it out. Uh, it's up at it's a beta site at the moment. So some of the first people that go there, you might it might not be functional, but uh, it's going to be good. And probably by sort of September, uh, when I get this episode up, you should be able to check it out. So that's fomovino.com. 
And, uh, yeah, 42 states in the U.S. it ships to. So those terrible states like Utah, you know who you are, the rest of you people out there that need to change the laws in your states. Enjoying adulthood and, you know, free countries and capitalism and that sort of stuff. So, uh, anyway, FOMOVINO.com. We're excited to be up there and to get the wines out uh, on a more of a national platform. And to a younger audience. Seems like a lot more younger people are comfortable with buying wines online. So, um, yes, it should be cool. The other thing I wanted to mention, which sort of relates to this episode, is uh, the Pinot Noir 2017 conference is the end of January in Wellington, New Zealand. I'll be attending. I'll have somebody there as a brand ambassador uh, helping me pour as well and attending uh, some of the conference uh, seminars and things like that. It's going to be fantastic. The last one they did was down at Central Otago. I had a buddy who was there and some other winemakers, and they just said it was off the hook. It was a great time and just learned so much. Uh, some of the best Pinots in the world will be there, and producers, Jancis Robinson, the guy from Tool will be there, Lanard, or Maynard. And, um, yeah, it should be a pretty exciting time. So hopefully some people can make it to that. I'm not sure how much room there is on it, but it's definitely something if you're into Pinot Noir, you should follow and check up on and see how how that world is developing. Uh, and you can just check it out if you want to poke around and see what it's all about at pinonz.co.nz. That's for my American listeners and the rest of the world. pinonz.co.nz. So, um, yeah, check that out. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to talk about before we get on to the episode with the wonderful and lovely um, Helen Masters from Atarangi is where I'm at right now. I'm in Austin, Texas right now. It's been a heck of a, you know, sort of 10 days here. Uh, I was at the Texom event, which was just crazy, uh, amazing conference. Uh, has to be the most intense and educational and connected and so many cool people at this Texom event. Um, as I mentioned, Paratua, we had a really good start with that, um, and we were on a lot of people's radar, so I got to meet some of the organizers, and it was just, I can't say enough how many cool people were there, and uh, if you are a SOM or somebody who's studying about wine and you want to learn more, I highly suggest, uh, if you can't afford to do it and go there to volunteer and just be one of the people polishing glasses and behind the scenes, because you'll meet so many people you can go to all the seminars once they fill in. You know they kind of have spaces in the back. Um, you can you can pop in and go to the seminars if you volunteer. I had some some buddies and some people I work with that did that, and they just learned so much because every time you're doing a job in the you know in the background, which is usually polishing glasses and setting up the rooms, it's sponsored by somebody. You know there's a you know a super Tuscan producer there pouring wines for you, or somebody from Chile pouring wines for you and talking about their wines and then outside of that just the you know they had all these hospitality suites with different producers uh but probably number one on the list of the interesting things was the seminars themselves and what i learned in there and you know talking to different people and it's always good even if you're a producer to compare yourself to the rest of the world and what's going on out there and uh man over sometimes overwhelming how how much was there and how much was going on. You sort of had to pick your battles and you can't meet everybody. Um, but I definitely met some great people and made some good contacts. And again, if you're studying, uh, look to that end of August. It's usually a, or middle of August. It's a dead time of year for a lot of restaurants. 
I highly suggest checking it out. I think it's just techsom.com, uh, and they do a, a wine awards uh, as well. So if you're a producer anywhere in the world, I suggest, you know, putting them in there. It's a different kind of competition because it's judged by all psalms. So really for on-premise, you know, uh, restaurant and hotels and stuff, I don't think there's a better conference in America. I'd be really interested to know if there was something better in the rest of the world because uh, it's such an interesting group there. Um, certainly funny because, you know, there's a lot of peacocking going on, a lot of uh, ridiculous, awesome bow ties and suits and cool hairdos. You know your local Psalm, what he's like. Um, so that was pretty funny and cool to see. And uh, But, you know, mostly everybody's real down to earth and real curious about wine and real passionate people. So, um, yeah, it was kind of interesting uh, to see all those folks in one place and uh, and be on the, on the other side of it a little bit. You know, there were definitely some producers there and people on the marketing side, but wasn't a lot of people there from New Zealand, I'll tell you that much. Uh, so that was a really great opportunity for us. Um, as for the rest of Texas, I mean, Jesus, whew. I arrived here, it was 102 degrees, which is, you know, 40 degrees Celsius and uh, humid and, and crazy. You know, sometimes I just feel so lucky to live in Hawke's Bay and live in New Zealand. I mean, God bless these these folks. I mean, on the one hand, it's such a fun and busy place, and particularly Dallas and Houston was, was just nuts. We had how much driving and traffic and and the heat, and there were thunderstorms, and, um, yeah, it's it's pretty full-on is what I would say, and, uh, you know, I certainly appreciate my lifestyle in Hawke's Bay, and, uh, you know, being in the industry, being in the wine industry on the production side and living a little more of a a sane lifestyle. I mean, we have our crazy times a year, but, man, I just don't think I could do it. I felt enough stress just driving around with our sales reps every day. Poor guys had to, you know, rush through traffic 20, 30 minutes between accounts. And, um, yeah, it was nuts. So I'm not sure what's going on in Texas. The economy seems to be building. Everybody's hustling. I mean, there's certainly that American work ethic and attitude that uh, I know they get a, uh, we get a bad rap internationally. But I think if you visit here, you see people just working their butts off and really hustling and still always chasing that American dream for better or for worse. And uh, it's certainly good for the wine industry. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting to see them into so many different wines, so many people into education and trying to just be better and learn more. Um, you know, I just say I'll be really happy, though, to get back to Hawke's Bay and into that lifestyle because, you know, the other thing about these cities that is, are a little different for me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of used to Philadelphia and New York where everything's pretty close together. There's some decent public transportation or it's walkable. I mean, here you just you're kind of like in the suburbs around the city. There's definitely downtown central business district, but whew, Outside of that, it's nuts. It's like, you know, the sprawl of highways going in a billion different directions. And, you know, I spent some time in my childhood in the suburbs, and I just don't feel like I'm comfortable there anymore. I don't know if it's something, you know, I either love the city and to be in it and walking around the city or to be just out in wine country. Uh, I prefer one or the other. I know they're kind of extremes, but the suburbs, I don't know, they scare me or something. Strip malls and traffic and... Uh, it's just strange to me. It's odd. Uh, it's something that 
I don't know, it was a shift in my head years ago, probably when I moved to New Zealand and or maybe when I moved into Center City Philly, which was, you know, in my 20s. Uh, I spent most, you know, all my time in Philly and New York in those times and Manhattan and the Bronx and Brooklyn and stuff. I, I, I can get my head around that, but the burbs are, yeah, it's crazy to me. So a little depressing in that sense, but unbelievably uplifting as far as, the curiosity and the interest, not only in New Zealand wines, but in Hawke's Bay and Martinborough. And, um, yeah, so real promising with that. And, and yeah, I think it's, it's, it's exciting. So, um, I don't know, with, with, without getting much further into it, I think we should get into this interview with Helen at Atarangi. She is just a bubbly, cool, unbelievably knowledgeable, well-traveled, interesting person. Um, and I think you sort of have to be to be one of the, the best Pinot Noir winemakers and, you know, with Atarangi, one of the top producers in the world. And that's not an exaggeration at all. If you haven't ever had Atarangi wines, search them out. You can find them in the U.S. Uh, you can buy them online. Um, just go to atarangi.co.nz. Uh, just Google it. You'll find the wines. They're in a lot of markets throughout the world. Um, they just got a 99-point wine from Bob Campbell, who's the... Uh, MW and kind of longtime great wine critic of New Zealand and well-deserved. Their wines are amazing. I will say this, when you open up a bottle of their wine, let it sit and let it open. Don't rush because these wines are extremely expressive, um, but they do take a little time to, to open up. So, um, And they're not outrageously priced. I mean, put them against Burgundy and it's like a tenth of the price. It's crazy. So... Um, if you can find these wines, they're fantastic. And well, let's get on to talking to Helen. And uh, yeah, any, anyway, decibelwines.com as well, guys, for any events and other stuff going on. And uh, check out Pinot Noir 17. Let's talk to Helen. Okay take my headphones off now we're here in wellington or wellington martinborough but isn't it going to be called the wellington wine district at some point wellington wine country wellington wine country so maybe i was a bit of freudian slip there foreshadowing i'm with helen masters here in uh atarangi is that's the name of the winery but is that kind of the name of the is that the name of this place that was given to it years or the, what's it actually where the name actually come from uh, yeah, so that's the name. Clive, who started Atarangi in 1980, had been a, um, a shear a dairy farmer in South Featherston, which is not that far from here. Mm. And he'd always had a passion for wine and um, he had um, become aware of the scientific report done by DSIR, which was the you know science arm of the government back then, um, about a study done by Derek Milne into the suitability of, of regions in New Zealand for vinifera varieties. And so he'd heard about that and he went along to the town hall here in Martinborough and um, from that he brought the first home block here at Atarangi um, and wanted to call the, the, the vineyard, the winery, a name that sort of symbolised his you know, new beginning in life. So Atarangi means the dawn sky in the morning in the Māori language, yeah. or a new beginning, a new day. So, um, and so it's really become kind of a, a symbol of who we are. So it's, and this is, I didn't realise this, I know this is one of the oldest, most established, but I didn't realise it's 
the oldest block or one of the oldest blocks? Yeah, so Clive planted the first home block here in 1980 at the same time Derek Milne and his brother um, were planting at Martinborough Vineyard, mm. Stan Chifney, um, a small plot um, which is now Margrain, and also Neil McCullen at Dry River. Dr. Uh, Neil. Dr. Neil, yeah. Mm. So he wasn't planting Pinot, though, until a few years later. Okay. So really, the first Pinot was planted here at Atarangi and at Martinborough Vineyard awesome. in 1980. And it, I mean, they obviously knew something, but it's amazing every time coming from Hawke's Bay, when I drive down here, I always get this cool feeling when you, you just sort of drop down into this and you say, oh yeah, this is Pinot country, you know? You're kind of, it always seems to be raining or something on the way here. And then you just sort of come into this old river terrace area. Yeah. And uh, I haven't quite got the same feel for it. I want to say the qu same feeling as I do when I go out to the Tamuna area, which I just haven't been out there enough. I've been out there a dozen times probably. But as far as, you know, coming into Martinborough and off of the, the main road there, you're like, yeah, this place is almost built to be its own little little yeah. appellation you know well it's in a in a real rain shadow from the um from mm. the ranges so we do get really low rainfall especially during you know the summer months when when we're at most critical time um it's it's a very dry um autumn so you know we're able to have lower i guess lower disease pressure and also um just our canopies are small there's not a lot of available water um and so in terms of small bunches concentration um being here in this kind of dry little pocket works and small area overall too i mean yeah i would think even bridgepaw triangle which is one sort of you know low, uh, not not lower in that sense but not as well known appalachian in hawks bay would be yeah twice as big as this yeah. or something it's kind least. of roughly five k's by one k's the kind of the terrace that runs through here where okay. most of the wineries are planted yeah i should know all this stuff being a producer of Martin <laughs> i'm just going to turn the heater off it's getting <laughs> hot <laughs> okay no worries no worries so we should um yeah sort of say how we got here how you got here uh, i just read a while back quickly that because i was supposed to interview you two years ago or something and then it didn't work out but you know as this being the first new uh podcast on the new site and everything it's like a big get for me you know this is kind of like the tonight show getting uh tom <laughs> hanks or something you know <laughs> so uh i read back then i think you you went to school here in new zealand and you've done harvests in otago and oregon yeah not france yet. Um, not, not, I've been to France, but not worked the harvest. So okay. I've done quite a few in, in California and Oregon as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I was born in New Zealand. <laughs> um, actually, not that far from Martinborough, but on the other coast. Mm. So kind of the similar distance from Wellington uh, as Martinborough is on the east coast, but on the west coast. Close to Paikakariki or further from Wellington? Than further from Wellington. And, of course, there's no wine-growing regions there. But if you think about it, when I was born... You know, Martinborough wasn't, <laughs> wasn't here. So, um, yeah, so not that far from. So sure. Wellington is was the city that was closest to me, like it still is now. Yeah. And that's always helped Martinborough, I think, as well, too, having that bit of tourist dollar and oh, yeah. big market right over the Rimitakas. Yeah. Know? Well, if you think about the guys when they first started here in 1980, you know, really they didn't know how it was going to work out. Um, and, 
it was people driving over from Wellington and going... Being curious. Being curious, you know, they'd buy a bottle one year, come back and buy six the next year and come back and buy, you know, 12 and became really loyal followings of yeah. of the Martinborough Wairapa region because it, because it was on their doorstep, because they could... The sense of ownership of that region to Wellington mm-hmm. has been incredibly important in terms of, of sustaining us through those early years where, you know, things are hard you know you've got you know vineyards take four or five years to really establish and then you know really after that you're waiting for vine age to get you know great wines yeah it's kind and of so like an yeah. excitement period and then like all right now what you and know? then you just got to hunker down yeah. and and you know make the you know balance the mm. make sure you don't spend too much when you don't have money coming in for such a long time so that those initial stages um you know wellington was crucial for that in terms of getting you know you uh, martin bar on the map yeah it's really a cool grounding you know pun uh, i guess pun intended of the wine industry is that you can't really rush it even if you're like somebody who you know wants to create this label and say you can't grow too fast or something you you know yeah especially if you want to make great wine Mm -hmm. you really have to have the patience and I, i it's amazing how many times over and over millionaires lose their money in learning this when they could just dip their toe in and slowly go in that way or just you know a regular farmer or somebody who has an interest they're going to have to take it slow as well and there's just no way getting around it you just have to do it year in and year out and just kind of wait and see and do the best you can and some years are going to be a disaster but i think that all great brands are built slowly over mm. time you know you see the ones that are enduring it's it's that they're built slowly so in a way um kind of that's been okay um that you have to be patient and and you just never know what what the spring is going to bring in terms of the wider upper here and um, where martinborough is situated we're completely open to the south you know we're very cool during our summer months and especially spring you know, there's it straight to the Antarctica blows through, and so we can have these just grueling spring weather during flowering, which results in you know very poor flowering. So very, very um, open bunches, very loose architecture of the bunch, and very small berries. So you know, we, we often, more often than not, have very low yields, yeah. and so it really has made this region um, really the, the playing ground of only those who are truly committed to <laughs> making great wine because commercially well, I, I think it's, it's, it's tough. It's, uh, you know, for people who are listening, take a look at a globe and look, you know, not only where New Zealand is, but where Martinborough is and the sort of tilt of the country and the exposure through the hills. And, I mean, I remember thinking that when I was doing – monthly wine tastings in Philadelphia and being Mark, I had Martin Ropino and was just like, what the hell is this stuff? This blew me away. And then looking at a map and being like, wow, I never really thought about how far down New Zealand is. Yeah. It's we're like a long skinny country. It's gotta be cold. You know, yeah. How do they do it? And then you see the imagery and things like that. And then obviously I've lived through nine winters here now and yeah. I, I get it. Um, but it's, it's pretty remarkable in that sense that, you know, you're, you're that close to it and you know you almost go how do they grow wine down there but yeah. i mean they do it in otago and that's yeah well otago is further south but their summers are hotter yeah it is really so hot. you know they have a cooler winter so a slightly shorter growing season than we do here in martinborough and so very you know if you're interested in new zealand pinot you know if you put a lineup of of pinot from martinborough and pinot from central otago they're very different yeah um and that's purely through 
um, the differences in, in temperature, soil, but also bunch architecture as well. You know, we're, we're a much looser bunch, whereas theirs is the more formed, compact bunch, just due to slightly being protected by the ranges during during flowering. And so the wines often are more fruit forward um, on the front of the palate. Certainly are, yeah. Yeah, yeah they get that. So, and where did you work in Otago when you were down there? So, the um, yeah, so um, back in, um, oh, um, it was 99, <laughs> it was 99, I think, um, I worked with uh, Duncan Forsyth at Chard Farm, oh, had okay. a great time, we had just, uh, that's a, a pretty amazing, pretty winery, yeah. right in the Gibson Valley, and yes, Duncan and I, uh, he's now with Ma- got Mount Edward and doing very well, we had, uh, it was a fantastic um, uh, opportunity in Marlborough, I worked at Harvest in 98 with James Healy at Cloudy Bay. That was also really, really interesting. Super guy. How far along was Cloudy Bay? I mean, because I probably didn't get a drink of Cloudy Bay wine until early 2000, mid 2000s, and they were well established by then. So they yeah, were they were pretty well established. Yeah. Um, you know, um, and and also doing you know good good things with Pinot. Mm. I guess they weren't. You know, the Pinot wasn't as known as well as the Sauvignon Blanc was back then. Um, but, you know, that was kind of in the early formative days of Cloudy, I guess. Yeah. 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 And then made your way back to Martinborough eventually? Or yeah, eventually. Yeah. yeah. So how, how, I, how I knew about Martinborough was that back in, you know, whew, um, <laughs> uh, about 89 or something. I knew I wanted to make wine when I was at high school, which was kind of a weird thing back then. Sounds like the guy working downstairs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so um, I'm from a very quite a large family. There's 12 children, so yeah, we we know how to. My parents are very good at you know putting on a celebration, and uh, so wine was was part of you know um, you know Sunday lunch and all those sorts of things. And you know, I always had this idea that I wanted to. I wanted to, to make something. I didn't want to shuffle paper. Mm. Um, and looking at sort of food items and I was like, mm, didn't want to be a chef. It was just too many late nights. And Good move. Yeah. And also didn't want to really do anything with meat or dairy because it's too easy to kill somebody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. well, salmonella and all yeah. sorts of things like that. Um, but wine, I love the kind of history and... You know, I'd pick up these books on Bordeaux and and Burgundy, and I was just fascinated with the characters and 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 the stories and the generations that had been around. Um, so I hit on wine. I obviously enjoyed drinking wine too, so that made it even more appealing. So after I'd left high school, I um, wanted to work in a winery for a year just to check out that this was, you know, what I wanted to do before I went to university and. Um, Michael Cooper, who's a wine writer in New Zealand sure. and still still a um, you know very um, busy wine wine writer, um, had put out his, one of his first books on the wine regions of New Zealand. So I had a flick through that, and uh, I was really just looking for people who look nice. Who's <laughs> <laughs> this cool guy? Yeah, yeah, and so I saw this couple, Clive and his wife Phil Patty from Martinborough, and I thought well, they look relatively young, mm. and so I I wrote a letter sent by mail back then to Atarangi and uh, Phil called and said would I come over and my mum brought me over for um, an interview 
and uh, Philip just had That's her. Screw your mum, brought you. To yeah, the yeah, yeah. I think she sat in the interview too. Yeah. <laughs> and Philip just had her first baby, Brit. And so we chatted away, and she's like, "All right, um, so yes, yep. Can you start?" I'm like, "Oh yeah, great." And I'm like, uh, "When?" She's like, well, "Now." No, get back there. Yeah, and mum's yeah, my mother is like, "Yeah, sure, she can." Yeah, of and course. And so um, I was like, kids, "But you know, what right what about my clothes?" <laughs> And mum said, oh, don't worry. And so she went home and packed up my clothes and put them on a Newman's bus because they didn't have couriers like they have now. And like five days later, my clothes arrived. And uh, so I worked here at Atarangi for a year, just doing everything really. So yeah. from, you know, cellar door to a vineyard, um, winery when necessary. And it was just a really good, you know, in terms of what I loved about it was the diversity of what, of what was happening on a day-to-day basis. Um, so, yes, I went off and, and um, studied food engineering, food technology at Massey in Palmerston North. And um, How much of that was, yeah, sort of any kind of alcohol production? Like <laughs> yeah, back then it was kind of like there wasn't that many degrees. I knew I wanted to do a more um, broader engineering chemistry degree rather than just a... Yeah, but, I mean, if it's, it's one of those things if those are really good basics to mm. have so that if you have the interest in one field, you can yeah. run off with it. It's almost better in some ways. Yeah, it is. And I, I kind of like studying, so I enjoyed it. So I went to, to and then after that, I'd, I, uh, you know, poor student, I got offered a job at Nestle in Auckland and it was kind of like the easy thing to do, you know. It was, you know, good money and I had no money. The so, big corporation. Yeah, yeah. So I went and worked there for three years. And you know what? I learned a lot. I'm sure they would have had all the whistles and bells. Yeah, and, I learned yeah. a lot about what I didn't want to yeah, do. Of <laughs> <laughs> um, so then after that, I left and, and went back and worked. What were they? What kind of, what was the production? Just cocoa so, and everything else? Like they yeah, um, like powdered soups. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. Sure. Yeah. Um, I and not ask what's in there. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, they made also, you know, milo and coffee and different products and so yeah it was really quite interesting um and then i went and went back and worked was like right that done and done that and um went back into winemaking and did sort of harvest you know central and marlborough Mm. and then went overseas and worked in um california at calera um uh, josh jensen's winery that was super interesting where is that and it's in sort of inland from um, Santa Cruz in the Mount Harlem ah, region. Yeah. So yeah. Josh Jensen's probably one of the first guys to plant Pinot. Cool. Um, so you're on a Pinot path. With this oh, yeah, absolutely on a Pinot yeah. path. You know. That's pretty cool Yeah. To so know at that stage too. I think it's, it's, really, it's really handy. And also part of it that I realized pretty quickly is, is choosing where you work because everybody knows everybody. Mm. So you kind of have to be a little bit strategic about – you know, going to places that are going to bring different experiences that are ultimately going to lead you to where you need to be. Um, and then... Well, how much, backing up a sec, how much from when you were a kid, and uh, I just had this thought in my head that as puts, you know, from my experience growing up or friends I know and people I know, you know, I didn't grow up in anywhere near where wine was grown, but, you know, we had some in our family from the old world. Uh, but it certainly didn't cross my mind until way later in my life. But do you think that growing up in sort of a wide open place, like, I don't know exactly your neighborhood in New Zealand, but the idea that like, oh, there's these opportunities out there and the fact that you kind of had 
space to say, well, I can go this direction or that direction or this direction. Whereas, you know, if you lived in a really populated area, it was like, these are your options and kid, everybody does this in this neighborhood or everybody does that. Or wow. was it the opposite? Or was it like, oh, you're going to be a farmer because you live in Kiwi <laughs> well, country you know, or something. I live in a small, Oteki is a small town and I just knew I was getting the hell out of it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so that was number one on the, on the driving list. And my dad, I just don't know if he really knew me very well, but he, his idea, he was giving me suggestions like, oh, you could be a secret. <laughs> and I was like, you're kidding me? I'd be the worst secretary that yeah. ever existed. <laughs> you know, I just saw you dealing with some emails and that's interesting. <laughs> Did you hear me swearing? You know, I think you could have used a secretary. <laughs> I was like, people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah no. I, so I think um, also probably by being the youngest of 12, you can pretty much... Oh, you're the youngest. Too. Choose to do. You just do what by, you're going to do. By 12, they're just like, all right, just go do something. <laughs> and and you're just like, you just go. You, I think you form your opinions. Um, you, you get a little bit more right. No, I'm not going to do that. Or yeah. And you kind of just have to. Um, you 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 really rely on yourself and make decisions and and have to back them up because mm. you know. It's, it's up to you. Yeah, yeah, you got to yeah. go for it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And uh, so where were we? Somewhere you were, you've done your harvest, and then we were thinking <laughs> about maybe how you ended up back at Atarangi. Oh, yeah. So I did another one in the Russian River, and then... Um, I love the Russian uh, yeah. I was a bit surprised, but I had heard things, and I think I had had a few of their wines when I, from Philadelphia, like the, re, you know, from the yeah. region. Yeah. We took a couple drives out there when I worked in Napa, and I just, yeah. that was another place where I'm like, I kind of get a feeling about some of these places around I just here. remember trying a, a Rockioli and just loving it, and I'm always really annoyed that we can never buy these wines in New Zealand mm. because I'd really like to try it, you know, 15 years, 20 years on from when I first tried it to see with what the idea of it that I had back then if it's still like that now, because I just was blown away by that wine. But it's really hard to get very good wines from the US here in New Zealand. Mm. Um, you know, it's a real shame, but, you know, I guess people don't want to bring them in because they end up so expensive here in New Zealand compared, yeah. I guess, to lo what local wine prices are. A real shame, yeah. Yeah, you got to chuck that. Uh, I guess they're hard GSP to buy in the US as well, those types of wines. You have to um, be on a mailing list. Yeah, I think, you know, you're sort of Joseph Swan, and that, that's all like wine club wines, and, and you don't, you know, you might see it at some big wine list or, you know, some high-end wine list at a restaurant, but unless you're on contacting them directly, uh, a lot of that stuff is tough to come by. There, there's some good, yeah. you'd be surprised though, you know, there's some really... You need to do like a big massive swap with all the, you know, small I've tiny to, wineries I've, in the I've Russian River. i some people about bringing stuff down here, but yeah, it, it does tend to come down to price at the end. You go, mm. Mm, is somebody willing to, to pop in a, a six, even just a really, really solid wine at $60, $70, you know? Well, I tell you what, from Oregon, we see Kristen everywhere, and it's great. And they're just killing it in the market here in New Zealand because it's really the one of the only Oregon mm. wines we can find. I've just been in Auckland, and it was like, you know, Kristen was everywhere. So, guys from Oregon, get your wines here. Yeah. There's a market. Yeah. Yeah, there's a good four million people here. Or yeah. Like that, <laughs> that we know about. There's yeah. a lot of wine geeks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there is. I'd say it's... It's changing more and more, that's for sure. But um, so, yes. Oh, right. So Russian then, River yeah, Valley. yeah, yeah. And then up, um, I 
came back and worked at Martinborough Vineyard. Mm. So Martinborough Vineyard down the road from Matarangi. I guess I always wanted to come back to Martinborough because, you know, that's where I'd done that first formative year here at Atarangi before I went off. Um, so um, I worked um, at, at Martinborough Vineyard for three years. Um, and then in 2003, I came back to Atarangi. So, um, yeah, I've been here since then. Loving it. It's been good. It's been a couple of tough vintages in there, but as far as the, you know, sales and everything else, it's been pretty you guys yeah. have extended. And, yeah. Know. So my first, I arrived at the end of 03, and my first vintage was 04. And boy, that was hard work because... Um, we had about 300 mils of rain. We never get this. Mm. You know, here I've just told you how dry it is. But in 04, we got about 300 mils over, you know, the third week of Jan- uh, January, third week of March, I um, mean, April, oh, not April, February. And um, so just this huge amount of rain. And then, of course, massive canopy growth. Mm. And so we had to do so much work in, in the canopy to open it back up. And I was just going, oh no, this is my first vintage. The wines are going to be super dilute. It's very stressful, and mm. we had to do a lot of sorting. It's probably the only year that we've had um, some botrytis in the vineyard, and so a lot of sorting. And so that was really a trial by fourth. That was tough, but you know what? I couldn't really drink those O four wines for a couple of years because it would bring back the kind of the stress and the experience <laughs> of the vineyard. But I remember about two years after. Uh, you know, so it must have been 06 or 07, I was served a wine blind and I was like, wow, this is a really good wine. You know, it's so elegant and it's got, you know, you know, really um, got the sweet hay character of, of Atarangi and Martinborough and violets and so it's such a beautiful texture on it. And I was like, wow, this is a good wine. And then someone showed me it was the 04. And I think after that point, I just sort of relaxed a little bit more and yeah. it was great. 05, equally after that, was tough because we had um, a lot of spring frosts. Uh, I don't know if you remember, 03 was the year that we really got hammered with frosts um, in this region and you know, really no know. one was prepared for it. You yeah, know, I only know from the fact that I wasn't here then, but I know the fact that there's not a lot of wines no. from that even in Hawke's Bay. No. Yeah. Just really, you know, in 03, we had about 18 helicopters up in the air trying to frost project. And it was just, everyone, after those nights, everyone came down along, you know, how we didn't have a helicopter accident, I don't know. Mm. So after that, everyone got wind machines. But, you know, still 05, it was um, partly spring frost, but then this just terrible um, spring weather coming up from the Antarctic, which called a lot of flowers to abort off, very, very small bunches very small berries and so the struggle with that vintage was to try and make wines that weren't too tannic you know you had very very small berries hardly any juice mm. you know I'd, I'd distem it and then go where's the juice it's just all skins here um and so um those wines have actually needed a lot of time really and super interesting to drink now but for the first three or four years, just really tough in terms of so... And what kind of yields? I mean, tiny, like 0.75 tonnes to the acre, you know? Yeah, but uh, even like juice press oh, yields? Oh, yeah, juice press yields were ridiculously low. Yeah. And then we had 06, which was which was actually a really lovely vintage, just very classic, you know, um, in terms of yield and weather and not too hot, not too cold. It was beautiful, brilliant. And then 07 was similar to 05, but I guess I'd learnt a little bit from 05 and of just about how to really 
try and those in those years where you've got a lot of small berries, just how to back off the extraction a little bit. Because yep. um, actually, in, in years where you've got more fruit and slightly bigger berries, it's much easier to make an elegant wine. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so sometimes you get people go, "Oh, you've changed the style," and you're like, "No, that's that's purely Mother Nature's Mother Nature vintage variation." And we, you know, in New Zealand, we have as much vintage variation as as Burgundy. Yeah, um, I think that's uh, you know, it's I think it's getting better too as um, sort of winemakers and producers that there's certainly productions out there that are coca-cola or budweiser and they're trying to make the same thing every year to a formula but as far as fine wine and and solid good mid-range wine from what i can tell certainly with the younger people they're very interested in differences in vintages and very and very open to the idea that like yeah this this one's a little different than the ones you've had in the past where it might just be the whole world waking up to that idea that they're less scared of saying like, well, if I buy an Atarangi, I expect it to yeah. be this way rather than... I think there's been a huge change in New Zealand. You know, if you look back 30 years ago, how many people drank wine? Yeah. And so because they didn't drink a lot of wine, when they did drink wine, they wanted to, to look like a particular way. Whereas wine is much more part of what we do. And, you know, people who are now 30... You know, their, their parents were probably buying and drinking more wine at the age of 15 mm. than their parents did. And so now the whole idea that, that wine is something that's um, um, a natural product that should be expressive is becoming, you know, you know people are seeing that in foods and restaurants and, and everything we do, the whole craft nature is coming through in coffee and beer. And so yep. people are much more open to the idea and, and are interested in terms of, you know, the season we have experienced and how it comes Definitely. through in the wines. So much more exciting times. Yeah, it's good to get out there. That's I was just talking to Chris. I said, oh, I made quite a bit of Viognier this year. And he said, what the heck are you going to do with all that Viognier? And I said, trust me, man. You know, at least when I go to the States, there's an interest there in something different. Mm-hmm. And you can't go over the top. You know, you're not going to make billions of liters of this stuff. But it's like, there's a market out there, you know. There's a market out there for croatian chardonnay you know Absolutely. there's a market out there for you know and just make sure you, you know you've got enough if you know i'm not saying it's easy if everybody can do it but if you're doing a good job and doing what you need to be doing that you'll find a way to to get the wine to the people and they'll, t- and they'll buy it you know you got it's hard work i'm not saying that but it is it's out there and if that's what you want to do you can but if do you're it. passionate about it and you're like if you've you it know, comes through yeah if you've yeah. grown that fruit and you've invested so much into it and uh, and you really think it's an interesting wine and believe in it, that, that definitely comes through. And, you know, if you haven't got a huge volume to sell, then you can kind of wait. We're and still a drop in the ocean yeah. compared to everything else. And also with there. a bit of age on it too. You know, it's not often we're, you know, people get anxious if they haven't sold all their wine straight away. But, hey, most of the time wine looks better. It does. With age and, and most of the time when people buy it, they drink it straight away. I've been fortunate with... Hawksbay Sauvignon Blanc with that because it does pretty well in the bottle. And yeah. Third year on, you're it's like, wow, this is getting better. Yeah, know? absolutely. But um, speaking of that, actually, uh, I, it seems like a lot of times I've cruised through here or talked to you, you're, when it's not vintage, you're on the go. You know, you're out selling, you're out traveling, you're doing a conference, you're speaking somewhere, you're in something, Pinot this or that. Yeah. And we'll get on to Pinot 17 in a minute, but uh, you seem to be. They got you on a in a car or a bus or a train a lot these <laughs> days. I think the thing is, is that you know the um, there's really cool times that I need to be here at the winery, especially um, 
um, the months of January, February, March, April, May sure. are definitely here. Um, need to be here. And then once I've got the, the wines in barrel, I've got a, um, Chris who works for me who's super. Um, Chris was my first podcast. Yeah. I broke my cherry with Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so, and and really we don't have a marketing team up and down. This is a small winery. And so when when the winery is quieter and I've, I've got the bottling is done, yeah, I do, I do. Um, That's got to be so much more effective too. I mean... Yeah, uh, what I find really winemakers well, sometimes principals as they call them, you know, which I guess in this sense would be Clive. But you know, he's we could talk, I'd love to talk about that a bit too about as far you know stuff he's doing with native plants and things. But yeah. uh, he's obviously well tied into the story here and the wines and everything. So that's another situation. But those two, once you start going down, assistant winemaker, vineyard, even the vineyard manager as well, well knows wines well, that can work. But once you start getting into the the you know the salesperson or the it starts getting a little bit farther away from the actual process and there's they can only be schooled up on so many <laughs> yeah. so many things you know they get the wrong question at them and then people are, I don't think they really know what they're doing <laughs> but you know what the other thing that's really great is that when you you're on the other side of the world and you're pouring your wines and you pour them and you go dang, I, I, I'm really happy with these wines. Mm. It's actually really nice to see your wines in other contexts because otherwise, you, most of the time I just um, eat in the winery. I, d- I don't tend to drink my wines at home. I drink mm. everything else. Sure. Um, so when you're on the other side of the world and, you, and you're doing a tasting or a dinner and you're like, wow, I'm really happy Gives with these wines. Yeah. So it's really good in terms of perspective um, and seeing how your wines stand up. So and it's plus the food's going to be way different yeah, wherever you're at, yeah. And, and and just and seeing you know and 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 just you know seeing what's happening around the world is is, is incredibly important in terms of where we're going in terms of the future of you know growing the grapes, wine making, it all sort of links together. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, most of the time I enjoy it. I, mm. I actually you know it's incredibly lucky. Um, you know I I don't know how it would be on the road selling car tyres, for example. Yeah. But um, <laughs> travelling and selling wine is, is, is really a bit of a joy. Uh, you get to eat at really great restaurants and meet really super interesting people and drink great wines on a wine list. What are your you know? big, you know, your sort of normal stops? We talked about the US a little earlier, you're going through there. Yeah, so uh, this... You mentioned Japan to me before. Yeah. So we try to kind of... Uh, because we can't go everywhere. We're a small yeah. winery. So last year did more of the um, the um, UK. Um, UK um, and this year I'm doing Australia. We tend to do Australia every year because it's so close. Sure. And there's such a great market. Um, and this year I'm doing the USA. So... Um, and then next year I'll probably do Asia again. So try to just sort of have a rotation going um, so that, you know, each market sees, sees us, you know, every month or maybe 18, 22 months or so. Um, but, you know, you can't you can't do every market every year. And no. Mm. Yeah. And obviously people can just go to the website, which is just atarangi.co.nz. Yeah, and there's lots of information on there about the wines and who we are and what we're trying to do. And, and you know what, we've... we've <laughs> spent a lot of time and we've been very lucky in terms of the distributor and porters that we have um, in each country trying to choose 
um, people who are quite like-minded in terms of uh, a real desire to, to, to sell fine wines, um, and especially wines that are perhaps from family wineries mm. or small, um, small wineries. So, you know, we get huge support from them um, in terms of, you know, really telling our story around the world, which it's too exhausting to do it all yourself. And um, so it's great to have people who, who do it from yep. in each country. What, uh, going back to, to Clive, so uh, his native tree project? Uh. Yeah, so Clive's always always loved trees. And um, I guess, you know, it went to another level back in 02 where Atarangi brought a, um, a block of land sort of more towards the coast, backing onto a national park um, of about 300 acres of land, which had been cleared. You know, most of New Zealand has been cleared. If you look back 900 years ago, 95% of New Zealand was covered in native bush, and now it's about 25, 27%. And, and, you know, a number of reasons for that, you know, the early Māori, how they could get the moa, which is their main source of meat, was by burning the forests, and then the, the Europeans coming in to farm, and then also the introduction of, you know, a lot of um, pests, um, such as possums and stoats and weasels and things have really decimated a lot of the... Um, Everything adds up, yeah. It all adds up. So mm. decimated a lot of native trees and a lot of the indigenous species of birds and things. So this block of land, um, Clive's been really trying to regenerate the native bush backing onto the to the uh, national park. And then also um, planting a lot of trees as a carbon sink, so a real diverse range of... Some of it's even like as gum trees, Australian hardwoods. And some of those we're planting uh, a ground durable type to use as vineyard posts um, in our organic vineyards because we, we don't use TCA-treated posts. So, you know, experimenting with um, types of gums that don't need to be treated that are hard and, and ground durable. Good so TCA in your vineyard. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's planted about 55,000 trees. So a massive project. And that's come through in terms of one of our Pinot Noirs that we make is called Crimson. Mm -hmm. And proceeds from the sale of that go to, it's a national group called Project Crimson, who are working throughout the whole of New Zealand in terms of regenerating the Pahutukawa and its cousin, the Rata. And they are often, if you see images of New Zealand, it's a, a flowering tree that flowers at Christmas time. So it's like a our New Zealand Christmas tree while you're on the beach, you know, with your barbecue. Sure. You've got these beautiful trees along the beach line with gorgeous red flowers. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, sure. I know yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, us, we definitely don't have snow. No. <laughs> at so Christmas. not at Christmas. And uh, winter can be, I was just talking with your uh, girl from Oregon in there about uh, how winter can be tough here because in Hawke's Bay, I'm, you know, probably about five, six years ago, I just said, that's it. We're like every month we're going to do at least one event or something because otherwise people just sit in their house and they just wait for the spring to come. And the spring <laughs> and summer is like amazing in Hawke's Bay. And then obviously autumn we're in the winery and it's a very exciting time, but then it's just like, yeah, you get everything in the barrel and you're like, what do we do now? So I think, quiet, yeah. You know, and there's no holidays to break it up. No. Yeah. So winter is, is a hard, long period. And, and generally, it's super cold, but it's also wet. Yeah, exactly. So it's muddy and it's... Well, the, the events we plan are inside, so yeah. that, that helps. But it's just getting together, you know? I mean, yeah. That, that's, that's the idea is, uh, 
you know, to not have everybody sit in their spots and just give everybody an excuse to come over, yeah. even if it's just a big dinner party or something like that. But I, I, I don't know if this is true, but I always imagine European winters that it's much drier, cold. Is that true? It's, it's uh, like yeah. gorgeous snow and uh, everybody's looking amazing yeah, in their yes. ski suits, whereas here yeah, you're wearing gumboots and covered in mud. Yeah, it's yeah. The, I, the first winter I was here, I was like, it's been raining for like three weeks straight <laughs> sideways, you know, so yeah. I know what you're saying. It's and, where we uh, get most of our rain is winter. Yeah, well, yeah. we just had a big weekend of that. I saw some vineyards underwater in Hawke's Bay. Yeah, well, Hawke's Bay needed it, though. Yeah, we needed dry. it really bad. Mm. It was so windy. And dry, and it was great winter up until that. <laughs> but not good for, for, we needed some snowpack up there on the, on the ranges. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's a little bit different. That kind of goes back to, you know, that really tough question I gave you earlier about growing up in New Zealand. Uh, you know, I find that with uh, men and women here, just any, everybody, the people of New Zealand, is that it is, you know, it's quite hard. You know, even the summers can be kind of raw, you know, and the winters can be tough and things like that. And I think the people, uh, you know, once you get out of Auckland, of course, uh, <laughs> <laughs> can be, can be, t- are tough, you know, and, and, you know, I've seen such hard working people and, and, you know, the wineries and stuff that just get on with it. And, uh, uh, and just in the town day by day, I see kids. I'm like, man, look how that kid's dressed. He needs, you know, he's, got he's, just, feet yeah, he's just like walking around in the winter time and I'm like, okay, okay. So, uh, and I think that, kind of as part of the culture you know but doesn't mean again can't get together by the fire and drink a bunch of wine in the winter i I think that you know people people are kind of tough here they don't complain a lot Mm. but i think most people who have traveled are kind of aware of what an amazing country we live in Mm. and how lucky we are and so it's kind of a sense of innate kind of pride that emanates through most new zealanders i think and it um you know, people aren't afraid to work hard, um, and I kind of there is a bit of uh, stuff around being tough. You know, I guess you see that in our rugby culture. You know, definitely. <laughs> yeah, that would be. Yeah, but I mean, again, it goes to the into the work culture as well, and uh, yeah, I guess there's that. I mean, you think about it, it's like these people came so far. I mean, just yeah. to get here. Imagine it. You know, we're complaining about mud. Imagine when they would you know, getting the cities going without any roads, yeah. like with a horse and cart. It'd just be just thick mud everywhere in New Zealand because we do have rain. Yeah. I just, and I just imagine all the washing, all your, those long dresses in the mud with no washing machine. I just thank goodness I was born now. Yeah, born in I don't like washing that much. I'll <laughs> oh, be saying the same thing in a couple hundred years about us. I know? get to leave home and, you know, yeah. come to work. It's yeah. so good. <laughs> I know. Um, so I mentioned it earlier and, uh, one of the reasons we wanted to catch up was because of Pinot 2017, mm-hmm. which is last time it was here was 13. That's correct. So that's a New Zealand wine growers sort of not sanctioned, but organized event, or is that a globally organized event? So it's, it's organized by a board, um, and their board is from, as Pinot producers, a group of Pinot producers, um, throughout New Zealand, um, Wine growers is kind of like our, our we organise it for wine growers basically, okay. yeah. um, and it's very much an independently run, but with them completely on side, and and so yeah, it's it's um, a pretty exciting event because it's the one you know every sort of this is the fourth we've had a gap of four years, 
And it's really about showing where where we're at in terms of um, New Zealand in terms of Pinot Noir. So there's 121, I think, at the last count, producers from throughout New Zealand who will be at Pinot 17. And so for them, it's it's all about you know celebrating what is what, who we are as New Zealand and 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 showing the world, I guess, where where our what our Pinots are like and. And um, and I think it's really interesting for those people who have come back um, since it first started in 01 and seeing how far and how far the people's ideas of who of who they are has changed. Yeah. Um, so it's an incredibly important event in terms of celebrating where we've got to. Um, as well, it is, a, it is the red wine of you know of the country. Yeah, and, definitely. Uh, and it's got the you know. Because of that long skinny thing we're talking about, it's got I mean, the difference between Martin Bro and Nelson and Otago and Canterbury and all, you know, it's really, really interesting. Yeah. And Pinot is a varietal that I think shows uh, terroir and regionality so, it's so pronounced, you know, and, and that you can you can see it. So uh, I'm, I'm going, I'm looking forward to just being a part of it. Just kind of, you know, I would normally when I go in sometimes I'm ready to network and do this and that and I will have a little bit of that on but I'm really going in as like a, a baby because it's obviously the first one that I'm doing but I'm really looking forward to just th- exactly what you talked about was just seeing what everybody else has got seeing what's out there listening to people talk I live up in Hawke's Bay which you know we make just a speck of Pinot and it's not even really grown where, where we are and where we live so there's three three Pinot Noir producers from Hawke's Bay coming though, and they're super excited. Yeah, like well, um, Lime Rock, I'm guessing. Lime Rock, yeah. Uh, Cellini. Oh, Cellini, yeah, they produce tons of Pinot. Yeah, right. and um, Junction. Junction. Junction, yeah. Yeah. So Junction's great people. I love yeah. those guys. So, so it's, it's, you know, and I, th- I think it's great to have them embracing about, you know, where they're from. You know, it's not, pra- it's, it's a different style, but I think it's all about communicating what your Pinot Noir is about, you know, it is going to be different from is other James regions. Is James Stoner from Milton? No, James isn't. Because yeah, he's done Pinot there for quite yeah, a while. Yeah, he has. Yeah. And I know it's not a big part of what he does, but um, yeah, he doesn't make a lot. It's very different style. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I was, I'm ju- I was just thinking in my head, who are the other regions that you know speckle here and there but you'd really have to be invested in so um Kumiu's coming along with their Pinot Noir and I think that's great because it is Auckland it is very different um and but they're just pleased to be part of what's happening with Pinot 17 because it is you know an amazing group of people um really celebrating um and I think also now we've got more vine age. So people are really, you know, starting to hone part. in on... That's the crazy part. ...is, is what, what their region is delivering in terms of, you know, is it all about texture? You know, what makes their wines compelling? Is it, is it length? Is it, you know, bright upfront fruit? Mm. And, and people are now getting a sense of, of real identity that, okay, my wine's different from yours, but this is what my region does well and this is what... I love about my wine and it's being able to tell that story and tell it to you know to the world so that people get a sense that you know New Zealand Pinot Noir is its own thing and within New Zealand there is many different forms and shapes and um, stories to be told and and for people to you know experience so we're going to go in and 
attack Wellington, and that's in right late January. Right? Yeah, so it's like the 31st of January through to the 2nd of February. Um, a really great lineup of people coming. Um, we get just huge number of people just um, coming from around the world. Um, I guess in terms of some of the, you know, Jancis Robinson's going to be there, which is mm. great. Um, and and part of part of that is is because, you know, we want to do on day two. We're all about you know what makes a great wine, and and getting our head around, you know, what what is it? You know, for everybody it's different, and you know, is that going to be different in ten years time? Um, in terms of of people, are, you know, being able to communicate and understand about what makes their wine really compelling. And that, um, of course, it's not going to look like a Burgundy. No. Um, and, it, you know, it shouldn't. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, th- uh, you mentioned Vine Age earlier. I think, uh, you know, if I'm a wine, and I, I mean, I've seen this written, but if I'm a wine critic in Japan or the U.S. or the U.K., or so, it seems like the world must be watching New Zealand for Vine Age with Pinot because it's like, Jesus, you know, the, the last 20 years, or, you know, you just see these new vineyards and sites popping up and you're like, that's exciting. Well, yeah. wait a minute, that's exciting. Yeah. And it's like the whole country, all these different spots, and you're like, man, what are they going to do when they start getting some age? Because, you know, that's yeah. supposedly what the trick is with Pinot. As you said earlier with Atarangi, it was about waiting and seeing and really hunkering in. But uh, it's, yeah, it's pretty exciting to, to wait and see, you know. Yeah. So, and uh, now we're kind of getting into it, you know. Yeah. We're now we're People are, you know, uh, are, you know, using more whole bunch, um, really sort of exploring the range. But also, you know, part of what makes New Zealand wines great is this fantastic expression of fruit that we get. Mm. Um, because, you know, it's such a clear sky, you know. New Zealand, it's in, in the summer, it's um, incredibly bright and incredibly hard on the eyes. And so that is part of the terroir of New Zealand. You know, the wines have this vivid expression that you know, perhaps nowhere else in the world can can match. I think that's tough for people to understand until you get off the plane, and you go, "Wait a second, the, the tree looks greener, the yeah. leaf looks, th-, you know." And it happens to me every time I come back to New Zealand. You know, where I f- and I feel the opposite. Like, you know, when I go visit Mara's family in Italy, it's like there's an older feel to everything there. You yeah. know, and and certainly parts of the states too but it's kind of like yeah it's just a little bit sort of grungier and heavier there and then you get off the plane in New Zealand and you're like my con- yeah. you know, I just washed my glasses or something everything's so much crisper and cleaner and vi- vivid is a perfect word you yeah. know so obviously that has to reflect in the wine right exactly it has to come through in the wine so I think if you're trying to make your wine to look incredibly savory and and so that you almost can't tell where it's from. I don't know if that's the point. I think no. it has to be, it has to show, you have to, have to pick up the wine and go, wow, that's a great wine. I think it's from New Zealand. Mm. And I think that's, you know, you should be proud of that. It should be part of, you know, what, what we're trying to do. Yeah, maybe show a little restraint in what you're doing. Yeah, you know. But, but definitely you can't dumb it down or mask it. Down no, no, way, exactly. Know? And I think it doesn't have to be vivid fruit like you know cherries and things but it has to be have a vivid quality to mm. it and um you know i think of the regions martinborough we have you know we have more of that savory spectrum naturally and so sometimes part of what i'm trying to bring to it is to not let that too dominant as to actually show you know and part of what we're doing more as we get more vine age is, is we can pick it a much earlier spectrum mm. Um, so I think, you know, things are really exciting. Again, that patience coming through. Yeah, 
yeah. you know, hanging in there and say, oh, we had a good vintage. I don't know about you guys. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> New kid on the block having to complain. You, know? <laughs> you tell you what, though, it's never, you know, you're never quite sure until, you know, it's in the bottle. And even then, you know, I kind of really only kind of relax until it's been in the bottle about four years. That's our job. You know, <laughs> that's the job is to, I always say, uh, I don't like to work with anybody who's uh, outwardly panic panicky because then you make mistakes in the winery. Yeah. But if they should be panicking on the inside, <laughs> <laughs> you should be freaking out inside and be like, "Did I do this? Did I do that?" But on the outside, like, "Yeah, it's good. Oh, yeah. it's good. Yeah, I'm so good. totally what I was meaning to do." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess I spend most of my mornings of, of harvest out in the vineyard looking at fruit, which is actually great because it's kind of freeing. You get to go out there and go, "Okay, what am I going to pick? You know, mm. how is it tasting? And you know, how does that work compared to what I've already got in the winery?" and what's the weather doing and half of it is what is the weather doing sure. in New Zealand because you know weather change can quickly. change pretty quickly um so we you know we're obsessed with weather forecasts here <laughs> and you got you said you have uh, some organic blocks and some conventional yeah blocks. so everything um that we farm here at Atarangi um, ourselves is is um, organically certified mm -hmm. yeah so we have some parcels of fruit um, that we have long-term contracts with that we buy the fruit um, and and some of those are in conversion, so not fully certified. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So yeah, it's it's a tough it's tough here because the the free draining gravels of of Martinborough are, are pretty free draining. Yeah. So we have to work really hard to keep competition down around the vines, uh, in terms of um, just you know uh, trying to retain as much moisture as we can for the actual vine. Um, inner vine plantings is that. Yeah, so so during autumn we'll we will um, interplant um, really to try and keep um, um, vegetative matter in the soil uh, and also just to on, on a rotational basis though yeah and to break up the soil between the vines and to aerate the soil. I just heard this amazing podcast from Radio Lab about uh, it's called From Tree to Shining Tree and it's about the what's going on under the ground and all the fungi that is connecting yeah. all the trees and that they benefit from being different kinds of species and uh it just has a whole network and communication it, like, system and, and they said there. you know all these different they had all these different scientists talking about it and you know forestry people and this and that and they all kind of said when you back away from it it looks like a big brain yeah uh, and it's all these nodes connecting like kind of like neurons and they send messages to each other and everything and i was like oh my god this is crazy and you think yeah. about a vineyard that way and yeah you know, and so how important it is to try to be organic because if you're spraying something nasty, it's going to kill yeah. all that, you know, and you wonder why they wouldn't be able to fight off things. Well, a lot of the introduced ryegrasses that are great for farming are really invasive in the vineyard, and they actually have found that the, they, they send out messages to inhibit other plants growing <laughs> so that they can survive, and that's why they're so tough. Yeah. So you imagine in a high country, you know, which should have been in trees anyway, but it's now grassed, um, that that works well but in a vineyard it's crushing yeah, it's yeah. you know really inhibits the, the growth of the vine and so so you almost have to be proactive in that you want to and put you plant the right other stuff. things there yeah, that yeah. so that that then try to compete with the different other grasses that have come in yeah. so we're really having to try and, and look at you know what what do we do to manage all the introduced species that get a get a, get hold of and cause a monoculture how do we break those up yeah 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 it's fascinating stuff and it's 
you know, on the one hand, it's a little frustrating, but on the other hand, you're like, well, this is exciting, you know, it's a lot more work, but it's, it's, we're just, it's like, in some ways, we're just at the beginning. Yeah, and the other thing about having, um, you know, vegetative growth under the vine is that, you know, perhaps that's, that's not the way things are done in Burgundy, but here in New Zealand, it works because we're super windy. Mm. So if we had bare earth, we'd lose most of that topsoil. But what we're also finding is that for the first three or four years, the vines really struggle. But what happens is it pushes the roots deeper. So what would have been done by manually ploughing, we're actually getting the plant to respond in the same way by having to move down because there's too much competition in that top layer. And that's it patience again of starting out a vineyard and you just gotta wait and so actually a bit of you know growth on the top can have a positive effect you know Mm. by removing it you're making it easier for the roots to live in that top system yeah definitely they gotta reach down and get it and especially with these gravelly soils they gotta reach really far down yeah exactly yeah Uh, well cool I don't know I think maybe maybe we'll stop there you haven't been talking for a while I think we have I I haven't looked at the time (laughs) but I I had it set up so I wasn't really looking I didn't want to you know, inhibit us in any way, but uh, thanks. Hey, thank and, you. Um, Actually, uh, Daniel bought the most amazing morning tea this morning, uh, so we're all like full of cronuts, <laughs> custard and things. It's I, I couldn't resist. You know. <laughs> I, uh, it's always better to show up with something, you know, and then you'll be happier to talk to me. Like, all right, I'm not going to talk to this guy, you know. But, um, yeah, please, uh, you know, spread the word and let people know that I'm... About uh, your donuts, about... That I'll bring donuts <laughs> if, if they say yes to letting me interview them. But, uh, yeah, it's more – I mean, I think it's a way we can get the word out a little more in a different ways. I mean, I'm always, you know, listening. i got something in my ear a lot of times working alone in the winery, and I think other people – My husband know. listens to podcasts to go to sleep. So oh. <laughs> if well, you go to sleep listening to me, then I understand. Uh, I'll tell you what, if he listens to this one, you got a good man there I'm not sure if my partner is going to listen to any of my podcasts. <laughs> She's heard your voice enough. enough, eh? enough. Yeah. All right, cool. All right. Thanks. Thanks, thanks Dan.